Hello there. This is 2,000 years talking to you from the depths of back there when we was. Now I'm still and they not. Coming up on Philosophy Talk, the lure of immortality. Is it true that you are 2,000 years old? Oh, boy. I wouldn't mind drinking a little from the fountain of youth, but living forever? 2,006 months young. But I don't look more than 16, 1700, right? No, no. <laughs> No rational person wants to be infinitely tall. No rational person wants to be infinitely heavy. So why would a person want to be infinitely old? The Lure of Immortality, coming up on Philosophy Talk. Welcome to Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. I'm John Perry. And I'm Ken Taylor. We're here at the studios of KALW San Francisco. We continue conversations that begin at Philosopher's Corner at Stanford, where I used to teach and Ken still teaches philosophy. Today, we're thinking about the lure of immortality. The supposed lure of immortality depends on it entirely on what flavor of immortality we're talking about, Ken. Flavors of immortality, Doc? Well, on the one hand, there's personal immortality, continued existence as the person you are in one form or another. Well, isn't that what most people just mean by immortality? Well, most people in the West, maybe, but in Eastern cultures and religions, there's a very different idea. For many Buddhists, immortality involves union with the eternal oneness, in which all distinctions between self and other are transcended. Yeah, but frankly, John, I have never seen the point in that sort of immortality. I want to live forever, but I want to live forever as me. I don't want to lose myself in the great cosmic soup. So very Western of you, Ken. But even if we stick to a narrowly Western outlook, there's still different flavors for immortality. Think of the difference between living forever in the here and now versus living forever in the great hereafter. Uh, never been much of a believer in the great hereafter, I'm afraid, John. Yeah, but you got to admit that that's what most Westerners think of when they think of immortality. After you die, you are resurrected in heaven with luck. Living forever in heaven is supposed to be really cool. Yeah, but but what exactly would you do in heaven forever? I mean, there's no human drama up there, no no drama of love and loss, no striving, no conquest and defeat. <laughs> yeah, so sitting on a cloud playing a harp with a halo doesn't appeal to you. But you think living uh, on Earth forever would be any better? Don't get me wrong. I mean, I'm in no hurry to die. But living this kind of life forever? Why would anyone want that? Well, why not? I, I know you're going to say disease and decline and suffering. Of course, nobody wants that. But, but suppose we could eliminate that. I mean, suppose that you learn today that eventually all diseases will be cured, all suffering eliminated. Wouldn't you do everything in your power to hold on until that day finally comes? No. I mean, there are already too many humans. I mean, if they quit dying, I'm not sure it'll help suffering. If the old quit dying, things will get worse for everybody. Not just for humans, but every living thing. 
I mean, it just seems like an incredibly selfish idea. Look, overcrowding, that's what you're talking about. That's a problem. But this is a practical problem. We can deal with that. Set it aside for the moment. I want you to focus on just what you want for you yourself. Why on earth would you ever positively want your life to end? Because enough is enough. The life nature designed for us is basically toil, worry, and pain. It's interspersed with fleeting pleasures, food, and sex. But in the great scheme of things, those don't amount to much. Hardly more than the temporary cessation of pain. Oh, come on, you don't have enough imagination. You're, you're assuming it's all just the same old, same old century after century. But, but you've got to think like John Stuart Mill. Man is a progressive being, he said, and I agree, and that alone makes me yearn for more. I want to see the human drama fully unfold. I don't want to leave before the play is done. I want to be there when we reach the stars, when we penetrate the deepest secrets of the universe. I, I want to dream forever, John. I want to grow and develop forever. Yeah. Poor John Stuart Mill. If only he could have lived to see the horrors of World War I and the horrors of World War II, and the possibility of nuclear annihilation, John, and the Internet, John. which makes the sex slave trade so much easier to conduct. Poor guy didn't see all that human progress. I hate to tell you this, Ken, but you're not the star. You're just a bit player in the drama. Jeepers. But we all are. All of us. We're just bit players. To everything there is a season, a time to be young, a time to have a family and a job, a time to retire, to take pride in things accomplished, feel regret over mistakes made or things left undone, and yes, a time to die and leave the stage to others. So you want immortality, I take it, but only in the great hereafter, not on earth. No, I never said that. You know, I, I read Dante's Inferno about hell. That didn't sound like much fun. So I turned the par to the Paradiso about heaven, and I found that too boring to even read all the way through. So I think we've gotten ourselves into quite a pickle here then, John. How so? Well, we both agree that immortal life in the great hereafter would be well, plain boring. You fear that immortal life on earth would be plain depressing. I, for my part, worry that union with the all-encompassing one would be, well, just pointless. But, but then why do people make such a fuss about immortality in the first place? What exactly is the lure of immortality? Not sure I can answer that one, Ken, but I know where we might start searching. There's actually a booming market for immortality and life-extending products. We sent our roving philosophical reporter, Shuka Kalantari, to find out what's on offer in that market, and she files this report. Imagine you could live for an extra 100 years. Would you do it? How about 500 years or 1,000? That could be a possibility if you get cryonically frozen. Cryonics is the practice of freezing the bodies of people who've died in hopes that they can be resuscitated in the future. Some people think this is the key to longevity, like this guy. I'm a dancing, singer-songwriter, filmmaking mathematician, and a lover of life. That's George Nickel. He's currently working on a film about a tango-dancing vampire in Argentina. He wrote and performed all the music, too. Nickel became interested in cryonics in the 1980s when he built a really powerful microprocessor. A microprocessor is essentially the brain of a computer. Uh, without it, nothing much can be done by the computer. He thinks that in 50 or 100 years, 
nanotechnology could provide us with tiny, atom-sized robots that probe into cryonically frozen bodies, repair cells, and bring people back from the dead. Nichols says a century ago, doctors declared people brain dead if they couldn't hear a heartbeat, or they'd hold up a mirror to a patient's nose to see if there was any vapor. So, no pulse, no heartbeat, no vapor on the mirror, well, the patient's dead. He says some of those patients could have been saved with 21st century tools. Likewise, in 100 years, it may be easily possible to revive a patient who would be declared clearly dead using today's technology. Okay, but what about immortality? After all, the sun's going to supernova and vaporize us all in about 5 billion years anyway. Or we'll die a lot earlier because of global warming. So there is no forever. But if you want to live for a really, really, really long time, it's going to cost you. The Cryonic Institute charges $28,000 for a whole body, whereas Elcor Life Extension Foundation charges $200,000 for a whole body and $89,000 for neural preservation. Neural preservation. That means they just freeze your head. Today, the life extension industry is booming. In 2013, the market for anti-aging services and products was $260 billion globally. That includes everything from Botox injections to herbal supplements. The quest for immortality is one of the most universal of human obsessions. That's Adam Golner, author of The Book of Immortality. It's something that we have longed for since before there was history. One of the first stories ever written was a Mesopotamian poem about immortality. The Epic of Gilgamesh, which tells the story of a king who loses a loved one and goes off in search of eternal life. And he tries to find the secret to immortality. During Imperial China, emperors would take mercury-based potions the doctor assured them would let them live forever. They all died. So we're not that different from those Chinese emperors, except for we're not taking mercury, but we're taking human growth hormones, we're taking sirtuins. And we're getting all high-tech about it. There are people like Dmitry Itzkov, a Russian multimillionaire in San Francisco who wants physical immortality with the help of robots. Or Ray Kurzweil, a Google exec who believes we'll soon be able to download our brains onto a computer. And don't forget George Nickel. He's the tango-dancing, filmmaking mathematician who wants to be cryonically frozen. He says he wants to extend his life so he could learn how to do more things. There's just not enough time in a regular lifetime of today to do all I wish to do. And just having more time to experience this wonderful gift of life. Our individual reasons for wanting to live forever may be as unique as the different ways we've tried to do it throughout history. From downing mercury to downloading our brains onto a computer. For Philosophy Talk, I'm Shuka Kalantari. Thank you, Shuka, for that interesting report. Gosh, wouldn't we really want those guys to just live forever? I mean, what a boon to the world. I'm John Perry. With me is my fellow Stanford philosopher, Ken Taylor. <laughs> and we're today we're talking about the lure of immortality. We're joined now by John Fisher. He's a professor of philosophy at the University of California, Riverside. He's author of Our Stories, Essays on Life, Death, and Free Will. John, welcome back to Philosophy Talk. 
Thank you very much for having me. John, great to have you back. Now, you're the go-to guy for the problem of free will. Can we be free in a deterministic world? And if not, uh, can we be morally responsible? You've written acres of stuff on that, all first rate. But the well, problem of immortality is quite different. How, how did you get interested in the problem of immortality? Is that somehow a spinoff from the free will industry? No, I don't think it's a spinoff. Uh, you know, it's hard to figure out exactly what gets me interested in a particular problem. But uh, in reflecting on it, I think it is related to the fact that my grandfather, Mart Martin or Martone, was killed in a, a concentration camp in the Second World War. And I grew up actually in the San Francisco Bay Area and often visited my grandmother who lived in San Francisco. And I remember seeing the, the envelopes, the letters from the German government or part of the German government correspondence concerning my grandfather. And I remember growing up listening to stories about him, although not too many stories, um, but with a sense of loss uh, that my grandmother felt and my father felt growing up without a father uh, in this country. And I always wondered about my grandfather, and I, I saw the sense of loss that came from this. And so I, it, it got me to thinking about death and what a central role it could play in, in our lives. And it, it wasn't a good role. And so I, I think that's part of what got me interested in, in the subjects of death and immortality. And actually, uh, in my uh, publishing, I always use my middle name, Martin, uh, after my grandfather. So, John, that's an interesting story, and, and it, it explains uh, the loss we have when, when people die prematurely or before we get to know them, uh, before they get to finish what they're doing. Uh, there's a lot to be said for living longer than a lot of people do. Uh, I wouldn't mind living longer than I probably will, I suppose, if I was in good health. Uh, the people that were interviewed by Shuka seem to want to live longer. Is immortality, living forever, really the issue, or just living a lot longer than most people do? I think we all want to, or many of us do want to live longer than we actually will. But there are some people who literally want to live forever. And I think uh, many of the people like Ray Kurzweil and the people involved in cryogenic preservation really do want to live literally forever. Well, we're going to have to dig into what motivates that because I find it puzzling in, in our next segment. You're listening to Philosophy Talk. Today, we're thinking about the lure of immortality with John Fisher from UC Riverside. I'm curious about what our listeners think, Ken. What would it be like to live forever on Earth? How does that compare with the traditional idea of living forever in heaven? Would either or both be all that much fun? Eternal life, unending pleasure or unending boredom, plus your calls and emails when Philosophy Talk continues. Sure, I, I want to live. I don't want to die. But forever? Live forever? That's what we're talking about. The lure of immortality. I'm John Perry. This is Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except 
your intelligence. I'm Ken Taylor. Our guest is John Fisher from the University of California, Riverside. He's the author of many things, including Our Stories, Essays on Life, Death, and Free Will. You can join John for a live chat at our online community of thinkers. That'll be Friday, December 19th at 12 noon Pacific time. Be part of an ongoing online chat at philosophytalk.org. So, John, I want to get my head around this idea. You say Kurzweil and those people really do want to live forever, not in some other realm, but here on Earth. Help us imagine, maybe my imagination just fails, help me to imagine what that would be actually like, be like to live on and on, especially bracketing the worry of dying from disease and stuff like that. What would that be like? Well, of course, we yes, we have to bracket disease and physical deterioration, and we have to assume, I think, a clean environment and uh, economic, uh, reasonable uh, material comfort, uh, because none, none of us wants to live in a dirty, polluted environment and uh, poor and suffering and deteriorating. Uh, there was a so great, none of us uh, wants re- to live in a world which we're likely to actually have. Is that what you're saying? Uh, well, <laughs> Yeah, I think that's right. I think we are likely to have a world that's increasingly ugly and and polluted. And so I'm actually a, kind of a pessimist about this, uh, but I'm not a curmudgeon. That is, I, I agree with you uh, in, in the, the piece before on the show where you said we have to put aside some of these practical problems and focus on the conceptual issue. I mean, is does it follow just from human nature that uh, that that we would be uh, that that we would not find immortal life on Earth choice worthy or desirable, and I don't think it does follow. There are some famous philosophers, uh, Heidegger and Bernard Williams and others, who who argue that just facts about us as human beings imply that it would necessarily be boring and monotonous if it wouldn't be unpleasant. <laughs> uh, and I, I disagree with that. I think that. Uh, even an immortal life on Earth could give us opportunities to, to, to have projects, to, to solve intellectual problems, to engage in athletics and, and art, and to be creative. I don't see why our projects would have to run out. Our projects don't run out in our lives as we know them, and I don't think they would have to run out in a, in a longer life. And I don't think they would have to run out in an immortal life. Yeah, but but look, John, I don't think it's, it's quite fair to just bracket everything practical. I mean, we've got people who are actually advocating that that uh, this be made possible. They're thinking about the real world. Let me give you an example. Take Ted Williams. Ted Williams, as I understand it, his head is frozen somewhere in Southern California, hoping for the day when uh, 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 he, he can be... Uh, reattached to some kind of body, real or artificial, and then we'll have Ted Williams again. It, I don't, why would he want that? What would it be like to be Ted Williams coming alive, back alive in 2013? Will anybody care? I mean, some superannuated reporters will no doubt interview him, but to, to most people alive then, the, you know, they will barely remember Carl Yastrzemski or Big Pappy, uh-huh. much less Ted Williams. Uh, and these guys that want to live on his computers, is anybody going to access those computers? Does everybody, <laughs> anybody give a damn? I mean, there'll be plenty of live people to think about problems and and do athletic feats. I just I just think it, it sounds like a life of irrelevancy. <laughs> uh, and is that a practical problem? Well, if it is, it's a pretty 
pervasive practical I think, problem. You know what I think your problem is? You I think, think I'm a curmudgeon. No, I don't <laughs> think you're a curmudgeon. I think deep down in your secret heart of hearts, I don't think you realize that you're a Buddhist. That is, the Buddhists think the problem is overcoming ego. The thing that wants us to live forever is this obsession with self. But the real secret to nirvana and enlightenment is overcoming ego, merging with the great one, in which all difference between self and other just disappears. I mean, I think that's... So I, so I think it's because, look, the thing about ego is that I want to continue me. It's like this insatiable urge for me to keep being. Well, I'm, I'm closer I'm closer really to a Whiteheadian. We didn't mention his conception, but he, he called it objective of mortality, which is that you live and, and, and like... Uh, like any event or series of events or sequence of events, you continue to have effects. Mm -hmm. And he said it was the fallacy of simple location to think that you were just uh, associated with, with a particular time and space. On the other hand, I don't think he should have called that immortality because my effects will become increasingly well, well, marginal. But, but John, John Fisher, both the Whiteheadian and the Buddhist think that you know Kurzweil and all people like that are just too obsessed with their own ego. It's a kind of eagle disease to, to never want to go away. What do you think about that? I think it's just two fundamentally different ways of looking at the nature of the self or the person. Uh, you're right. I think the Buddhist and some Western philosophers, such as Derek Parfit, want to argue that we place too much emphasis on this idea of a simple, basic self. And once you get rid of that, uh, that idea, you'll see death wouldn't be such a bad thing. Uh, the self is not a deep fact on this view. But I think I'm kind of, a, I don't know, a, a, a son, as it were, or a person of the Western tradition. And I do tend to think uh, it's important that I, uh, I am a continuing individual with a kind of narrative or a story. And I do care about continuing that. I think Ted Williams arguably wants to hit some more home runs. And well, I think not, John Perry... <laughs> He's not going to, but yeah, no, he's not. And there are lots of problems with cryogenics. Uh, in my view, uh, it's kind of crazy because there would be a tremendous discontinuity in, in one's existence. And, um, so I, I wouldn't conflate or I wouldn't reduce the desire for immortality to this kind of cryogenic approach. But John, John uh, Fisher, yeah. I want to yeah. press you on something. You said, okay. you, you, were thinking, you started out by saying, is there something about human nature, right? But you're arguing from, I don't want to sound like a, a, a lover of the East because I'm not sure I grant, <laughs> it's some, you're arguing from a particular cultural conception of a self, and with that cultural conception of a self comes a desire for the continuation of the self. But maybe it's not human nature. Maybe it's just Western thought has gotten us so enamored with enduring selfhood that we can't see beyond it. Yeah, it's complicated. I agree that what I, uh, I'm willing to, to admit that there are very different conceptions of the self, and that might then lead to very different views about the desirability of immortality. But I do think there is a universal longing, human longing for immortality. And you see it in the Buddhist tradition and in the Hindu tradition, although they work themselves out in different ways. But, but it's definitely there. And there is in 
uh, kind of Buddhism, Pure Lands Buddhism, something like the Christian uh, conception of heaven, because at death, one, one, uh, you know, you finally escape the wheel of suffering and the cycle of reincarnation, and you go to the Pure Lands, which, which are, you know, not exactly like the Christian heaven, but something like that. And I really think that human beings have a deep long, longing not to die, not to die at any particular time. And uh, it would seem as though that pushes you toward immortality. Well, you know, humans have longings for a lot of things, uh, many of which are kind of stupid. Uh, but I want, since we're talking about personal immortality, I want to get personal. Let's think about you, John. Now, you are a very successful and dedicated teacher. You have a lot of ideas. But I've watched you. You take as much pride, maybe more, out of your students, influenced by you, made better philosophers by you, continuing uh, a process you set in motion of developing certain ideas. Now, I mean, as you get older, as you will, uh, isn't the natural progression of that uh, uh, more this Whiteheadian concept? Say, uh, yeah, I, I'm happy that I'm going to, to live on in the sense that I influence others, but why would I want to compete with them? Uh, I've had my turn. Let them have their turn. Isn't that a more reasonable attitude? Yeah, that's what he was saying to me in the beginning of the show. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes, I think it you is. You young people should, should uh, realize this. I think it is more reasonable given the constraints of the real world. We live uh, under certain constraints. And part of what we admire in people is a gracefulness in accepting uh, our constraint and our fate. But I, I like to play this, this game, as it were, of sometimes stepping back and, and wondering what it would be like if we didn't have those constraints. That's a beautiful thing about philosophy. We can, we can step back from our actual situation and wonder about other scenarios. And so I agree with you that given life the way it is, it's important to be gracious and to accept that one's going to leave the stage and by the way, I wish some of my students actually agreed with my views, but that's a different uh, question. I, I love to see them uh, flourish, and I hope that I'll be gracious when, when the time comes for me to bow out. But that doesn't mean that we can't let our minds and our imaginations soar. That's a, that's a great thing about philosophy. So, John, I want to ask you another thing, though, about this longing for immortality. Epicurus, as I understood him, think it's the source of all m misery. Well, it's not really the longing for immortality. It's the fear of death, which sublimates into the longing uh, for immortality. And, uh, and he thinks if we could get over this fear of death, we'd be much happier. So what do you think about that Epicurean thought, that the, the longing, the fear of death and the, and the con concomitant longing for immortality is one of the things that gets in our way from fully embracing our finite, fragile lives? I think he was right about a lot of things. And I think that what we need to do is avoid the excessive fear of death, dwelling on death, uh, making it a pathology. I think that others have pointed out that much of, uh, of human culture and great accomplishments come from trying to manage the fear of death. And uh, it's, uh, there's a great book by Ernst Becker, which is the beginning of terror management theory. And he argues that basically we're all terrified of our own death. And 
that's why we we do so much in terms of our accomplishments, which, athletic, cultural. Which yeah. which suggests the the follow, the inference you can draw from that is that if we stop fearing death, if we if the prospect of immortality would be. It would sap our motivation. It would sap life of its urgency and meaning. So, so why be a more if we if we knew we had infinite time? Nothing has any urgency. N- nothing is like See, must be done now. What do you think of that? Yes. Well, I think there's a deep kernel of truth in uh, terror management theory. But what I would point out is, in an immortal life, there would still be lots to be terrified of: loneliness, depression, a feeling of separation from your loved ones a feeling of not accomplishing what what you want to accomplish. So there would still be a lot of uh, challenges, and you wouldn't want to be a couch potato forever. At at some point, you'd start feeling... But a million years years relaxing, you know, that's not a big deal in an infinite life. But you're listening to Philosophy Talk. We're talking about the lure of immortality with John Fisher from the UC Riverside. We'd love to have you join this conversation. And Clara from Palo Alto's on the line. Welcome to Philosophy Talk, Clara. Hi, thank you so much, and thank you for this uh, wonderful um, program. So, um, you know, for me, it's an interesting point between immortality and identity, right? What do we consider our our identity? Because um, if we believe in science, right, and, and that we're made of atomic particles, then theoretically when we die you know, the atomic particles disintegrate into different forms, right? It could be a piece of, um, you know, bird or bird gut or tree, etc. So in that sense, um, identity is very important. And who knows in the future, as one ages, one changes too. And so in the future, if one is immortal, maybe we can even change our DNA and our, you know, right. and, the way we are and the way we feel loneliness or not loneliness and all this. So we commutate into different things. Clara, that's, um, a, that's a good thought, but, but, but uh, and thanks for the call, but John, I think Clara actually undercut something, right? I mean, if, the ch- if an immortal life, if in an immortal life, supposedly I, can exist as many different people with many different characters and all that. That's, that's kind of easy because human life goes on and for an epic, I'm, uh, I'm Ken Taylor, the philosopher. For, uh, for another one, I'm the hermit. For another one, I'm the priest. For another, and my personality changes and my DNA changes. Well, that's not really me throughout all those things in any substantial self, but can I live like this, with this psychology, with this personality forever? Wouldn't it just, you know, run out, exhaust itself after a while? Yes. Uh, boy, these are deep and difficult uh, issues. Great question. Uh, in our finite lives, we already experience uh, changes, religious changes, uh, political changes, uh, obvious changes in our memory. And I think what we really care about is, you know, a kind of continuity over time uh, where, uh, let me be uh, a little bit more explicit, The uh, it's like our identity is uh, a chain, and what we really care about are that the links in the chain be of the right sort. But over time, uh, we're going to change in a lot of ways. But as long as the, 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 the process goes in the right way, I think we could still be the same person. This is kind of a roughly Lockean conception. But you could have a very different view. You could say, no, I have a very basic fundamental self. 
And that self is not defined in terms of links in a chain or memory or values. And what I really care about is this, that this basic self continue. And I think that is the picture behind um, the uh, reincarnation views, that there's a basic fundamental self that's not constructed in terms of values or memories, and we do care fundamentally about that. Well, I don't know. I mean, one of uh, one advocate of reincarnation is uh, Tibetan uh, Buddhism and uh, their conception of of uh, of uh, of the next life of, of the next person in the chain is very much based on memory. But that's a scholarly aside, probably inaccurate. <laughs> uh, what I want to ask you about is this: going back to Ken, and and I'll just ask it, and then we'll continue next time. Uh, Fear of being dead. Fear of death might be reasonable if you're going to die of cancer or something painful. But fear of being dead. Didn't human Epicurus just solve that? Being dead is no worse than not having been born. None of us has bad memories of the centuries where we didn't exist before. So isn't fear of being dead just stupid? We'll We're, talk about that later. Yeah, you're listening to Philosophy Talk. <laughs> We're thinking about the lure of immortality with John Fisher from the University of California, Riverside. Living forever in heaven versus living forever on earth. How do they compare? Equally desirable, equally boring, equally impossible, incompatible? Health, harps, and halos when Philosophy Talk continues. Would you want to be forever young if it meant you never got to be a wise old man like me? I'm John Perry, and we're thinking about the lure of immortality. This is Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. I'm Ken Taylor. Our guest is John Fisher from UC Riverside, author of Our Stories, Essays on Life, Death, and Free Will. If you think of something you want to add to this conversation, you can join John Fisher as part of our live chat. It's at our online community of thinkers on Friday, December 19th at 12 noon Pacific time. I hope you can join us at philosophytalk.org. So, John, why don't you go, John was asked, John yeah. Fisher, why don't you go back to John Perry's question from before the break, the Epicurean Yeah, word. let me just repeat the question. I mean, uh, isn't the lure for immortality based in large part on the fear of death, which we can divide into the fear of dying, which is sometimes to be feared because it's painful, and the fear of being death, which is completely stupid because being dead, as Epicurus and Hume pointed out, can't be any worse than not having been born. And that wasn't so bad. I think that that being dead is indeed worse than not having been born. Or the fact that we die when we do rather than later is a worse thing than the fact that we were born when we were born rather than earlier. And that's because I think there's a deep and arguably rational tendency to care more about the future than the past. So I care deeply about having avoiding pain in my future and having pleasures in my future, whereas I'm relatively indifferent to pleasures and pains in the past. And since death deprives me of future pleasures, and prenatal, uh, the fact that I was born when I was born only deprives me of past pleasures. I think there's a deep, deep difference. But John, is it is it John Fisher? Is the take is take sentences? Is a sentence with an extra word in it 
five extra words in it or a hundred extra words in it. Always better than a sentence with fewer words. So here's a life, complete and on itself. The person achieved what they desired, did with it, and there's no more projects left. Okay, add some more life, some aimless part of that life. Is that aimless, you know, is that short life or medium life, you know, which is complete into itself? Is that necessarily worse than a life where you tack on more stuff? I mean, suppose you tack on millions of years of aimlessness. Why would that be better, intrinsically better? Right. Well, first of all, lives are different from sentences. And I agree with you completely. Actually, other things equal, I'd rather have the short sentences, like the short lectures are better usually. But so my view is not that uh, longer life is necessarily better. That's not my view at all. But my view is it's not necessarily worse. And I'm looking at the immortality curmudgeons, like, for instance, Bernard Williams. His argument was necessarily uh, immortal life would not be choice-worthy for human beings. That's what I disagree with. So we've got a caller in the line. Uh, Mar- Maria Louise from Palo Alto. Welcome to Velocity Talk, yes, Maria Louise. Thank you very much. Good morning. Yeah, so I, I would like to ask, I have not heard yet, at what point would I choose to freeze myself or whatever because Otherwise, if I am an old and sort of decrepit person, or if I'm in an accident, or if I have some major, uh, yeah, something goes wrong with my body, uh, that would not seem to be a good time to freeze myself. So wouldn't I then be left to make a decision, oh, should I be doing it when I'm 50, should I wait till I'm 60, or how do I do this? Um, (laughs) So anyway, that's what I'm... Boy, yeah, I'm curious to hear yeah. what uh, you think of that. Th- th- thanks for the question, Marie Louise. Suppose we let's put her question more pointedly. Suppose we all had the choice. You know, we all know human life has its downside. We decline. We have an end of decline. People are going to get old, and you're going to get disease. But you always have the choice to freeze yourself, right? <laughs> uh, at what point should one freeze? What age would one want to be? You know, frozen at that age and then kept in storage until such time as things were better. <laughs> How, how should I think about that? Uh, maybe John Perry has an answer to that. <laughs> I, I don't know. You know, it's interesting. In the uh, great uh, play by Carol Kopek that uh, was then made into an opera uh, about Alina Macropolis uh, by Janacek and then was written about and le- and was the subject of the great lecture by Bernard Williams, uh, the main character was... Uh, 37. Bernard Williams actually said that she was 42, but that was a mistake. Maybe he'd been reading The uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, or maybe it was because Bernard Williams was 42 when he gave that lecture at Berkeley. But she was actually 37. She was biologically frozen at that age because she was taking an elixir that at least gave her 300 years. I don't know the specific age. And let, let me say that this is another great question. There are many complications with cryogenic preservation, uh, and one of the, the problems is, you know, when exactly the cells can be frozen. Because, um, you know, if you wait too long after de- after the individual has died, then then you can't uh, preserve them anymore. But if you do it before, then you know, legally and ethically, there are all sorts of problems with 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 the possibility that you're murdering the individual. So it's very complicated. Uh, I think it's complicated, and I think if we look towards the future in which we've got... I mean, people think about YouTube, and they think about doing a YouTube that goes viral. But very few things on YouTube go viral. Most of them sit there unwatched. And I think most of these people living on in computers and frozen are going 
going to have the problem that nobody much wants to unfreeze them or download <laughs> them, and they're going to sit there like the things I put on YouTube forever. And speaking of my complaints about life, we've got a nice email from Steve that expresses them very well. I sit and study all day and all night long. Well, I doubt that. And I either repeat what I have learned paraphrase and quote or say my opinion in which case no one listens to me actually some people listen to me they read the titles of my essays and then kind of free associate about what i might mean but i don't want to get get whiny here uh it would be the same as it was yesterday if i could live forever they would just keep calling me an idiot it would be the same thing over and over again what a bore. Oh, Steve. Go, go for it, Steve. Steve. Is, you well, at least John. you can listen to philosophy talk. Steve. That's enjoyable. Steve and John, you guys are such pessimists, such grouchy pessimists. Here's the thing, though. I do think there's a deep point here. If the self is not expandable, if not infinitely developable, right, because humankind, I think, as a collectivity is developable. I don't know if it's infinitely so. Humankind as a collectivity is developable. Our minds are developable. We keep knowing new things. If I'm just going to be stuck in the 21st century and be an obsolete man in the 25th century, what's the point, right? So there is some limit, don't you think, to, to how ourselves can expand? Don't you think, John Fisher? I, I agree with you that if we're stuck, then we're, we're going to be bored or alienated. There's no point. But I, I agree you have to have some conception that allows flexibility and development. Um, and how much can we develop? That, that's an interesting question. I don't see, in principle, why we couldn't develop um, infinitely. I mean, we can develop in our finite lives. Why well, have a double standard? I mean, I know that when I get older, I'm going to not, I'm not going to want to travel. I'm going to want to live close to my doctors and so forth. I know that I'm going to change. Why apply a double standard to uh, immortality? Uh, well, good question. Uh, I want to go a little bit different direction since we're running out of time and just ask you this question. Uh, the, the people who want this personal immortality on earth, the ones that, that uh, were interviewed, versus the people who want uh, personal immortality in heaven, Christians, uh, uh, Jews, uh, Muslims, uh, at least of the traditional sort. Aren't these things deeply incompatible? Uh, I mean, if you really believed uh, that uh, there was a possibility of heaven, then, then wouldn't you be, if not in exactly a hurry to die, uh, look, look forward to it and think that if you live, lived on Earth forever in a computer or a frozen head or even in a healthy body, you would really be deprived from the greatest thing ever. So is there a, a deep schism in the immortality world? Yes, I, I am not a compatibilist about <laughs> these two ideas. I think there is a deep uh, difference in orientation. So you'll, the people who want to live forever through... Uh, supplementation and biological means, and then uh, eventually uploading their their the contents of their brain to computers. These tend to be people who are not religious, and I agree with you that on on standard central uh, Christian views, um, it's not a bad thing if a good in uh, Christian individual dies. It's not a bad thing for her or for him. She will be united with God 
in a, in a kind of blissful, ideal state. So, for instance, at a funeral, uh, for a, a, someone you think is, let's say, a good Christian or in certain Jewish traditions, there's a belief in an afterlife, um, you're not really mourning for the individual who dies. You're mourning for each other. You're, you're losing someone you care about. So, John, on... Uh I don't want to mourn the end of this conversation because <laughs> I hope it, that it goes on online and every place else. But I'm going to thank Forever you for yeah. But I'm going to thank you for joining us. Thank you very much. It was a lot of fun. Our guest has been John Fisher. He's a professor of philosophy at the University of California Riverside. He's author of Our Stories: Essays on Life, Death, and Free Will. So, John, you didn't start out being much of a fan of immortality. Has John Fisher convinced you? Uh, no, no, I, I always get a lot out of what, uh, John says, but don't always agree, uh, perfectly. I mean, basically a lot of stuff is going to happen after I deal. A lot of people are going to do a lot of things, hopefully including, uh, 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 my children, my grandchildren, my great grandchildren, uh, all bearing some imprint of what I've done. Does it make a difference that I won't be doing any of those things? Does it make a difference that the same person who has a good thought 40 years from now uh, isn't the person who's having this thought now? I can't see that it makes it any difference. It doesn't make a difference to them, maybe. It doesn't make a difference in the great scheme of things. In the great scheme of things, we're all just dust in the wind. But it makes a difference to us. That's what I think. But you know what? This conversation continues at Philosopher's Corner at our online uh, community of thinkers, where our motto is cogito ergo blogo. I think, therefore I blog. And you, too, can become a partner in that community. You can just do so by visiting our website, philosophytalk.org. Please join us at that community on Friday, December 19th at 12 noon Pacific time for a live online chat with today's guest, John Fisher. It'll be a great time for all. Now, let's hear from a guy speeding his way towards mortality, Ian Scholes, the 62nd philosopher. Ian Scholes, when we talk about immortality, we're actually talking about all sorts of pretty finite things. After all, what is immortal? Nothing, really. Well, gods of various stripes, but not so fast. The immortal Norse gods are dead, killed in Ragnarok. The Greek gods may not have died, but they morphed into Roman gods and then disappeared, except for brief appearances in classical literature and Ray Harryhausen movies. I guess they're supposed to still be around, but you don't read about them siding with Troy or Greece anymore, or the modern equivalents even, which would be Turkey and Syria maybe, and the gods would be, well, the United States, I guess. Vampires are supposedly immortal, but they only last for one movie. If they come back, they have to have a stake removed by a minion. And a producer has to be convinced that wicked vampires are worth two movies. Zombies live forever, supposedly, but really they'll rot away to nothing after a few years. With Christianity and morality, we can upload our spirit to heaven, and with atheism and modern technology, we can download our consciousness to a robot. That might be forever, but who knows? Robots rust. If you can't afford an upgrade, your immortal mind could be in trouble. And even heaven goes out of style, or angels do. Angels started out as fierce beings who smite you with mighty swords. But now they're guardians in flowing robes you stick on top of a Christmas tree. We throw the word immortal around pretty freely. It's the name of a Norwegian heavy metal band and the Cirque du Soleil Michael Jackson tour. He's been dead a few years now, but yet lives on, I guess. Circuses are fading, but we still have Cirque du Soleil. We have screen legends and legacies, none of which means squat in the great scheme of things. There's the immortal bard. When we call him immortal, we just mean people still know his name, like Michael Jackson, Mickey Mouse, Reagan, or Caesar. Earlier this year, Ira Glass, the host of This American Life, went to see John Lithgow as King Lear. He tweeted, John Lithgow, amazing. Shakespeare, not good. No stakes, not relatable. I think I'm realizing Shakespeare sucks. Well, so much for the immortal bard, I guess. Ira Glass just does not care for him because he's not as relatable as This American Life. King Lear is not cozy. This American Life will never feature kings going insane or couplets 
or eyes being plucked from sockets. But who knows? Formats change. Desperate measures are sometimes taken. Theater is mainly dead, but Shakespeare limps on, despite the strong opinions of Ira Glass. Radio is largely dead, except for philosophy talk and Ira Glass. Will Ira Glass turn out to be immortal? Well, I don't know. 400 years from now, some nostalgic vampire might listen to This American Life on a subcutaneous telepathic podcast or something and claim that Ira Glass sucks. Immortality, we must conclude, is relative. Do vampires even listen to the radio? Who knows? In the immortal words of the progressive rock band Kansas, all we are is dust in the wind. This dust includes Twitter, Facebook, books, words, opinions, Ira Glass, radio, blockbusters, Shakespeare, Cyber Mondays, transporter sequels, sexy vampires, the universe, everything. Everything has a shelf life, including, I'm afraid, the shelf itself. And sadly, the progressive rock band Kansas. I gotta go. All we are is dust in the wind. Philosophy Talk is a presentation of Ben Manella Productions and the trustees of Leland Stanford Junior University, copyright 2014. Our executive producer is David Demarest. The program is produced by Devin Strolovich. Laura McGuire is our director of research. Our marketing director is Dave Millar. Thanks also to Ted Muldoon, Merle Kessler, Erica Topit, and Mark Stone. Support for Philosophy Talk comes from various groups at Stanford University and the partners at our online community of thinkers. And from the members of KALW San Francisco, where our program originates. The views expressed or misexpressed on this program do not necessarily represent the opinions of Stanford University or of our other funders. Not even when they're true and reasonable. The conversation continues on our website, philosophytalk.org, where you too can become a partner in our community of thinkers. I'm John Perry. And I'm Ken Taylor. Thank you for listening. And thank you for thinking. All we are is dust in the wind, dude. <laughs>